They have a fear that we're going to make them, that we're going to be, quote unquote, a consultant. We're going to take all the energy and the creative ability and that unique quality out of them and dumb them all down so that they can just make profit. And although profit's important, that is not our focus. Our focus is whatever that owner's life achievement wants to be, we want to support them and then provide the means to make that happen. So it's we think backwards from most people or the problems that most people have so that we can actually help them achieve it. So our uh, the, the saying we go back to all the time is the best way to deal with the future is to create it. When you're running a business, there's always situations that pop up that are hard to get your head around. Sometimes it's a small thing, a little bump in the road, and sometimes it's a really big thing, the kind of stuff that ends up really feeling like a gauntlet, the weight of the world on your shoulders. One of the biggest resources a person can draw on in these situations is being able to have a knowledgeable outsider who can come in, look at the situation from an objective point of view, and shed light on the things that you can't see. That's exactly what Joel Pilger and Tim Thompson do with their consulting agency, RevThink. They're joining me today to talk about how their company came together, what it's like to spend their time identifying problems, and the importance of helping create the future. I'm Tim Thompson. I'm the founder of Revolution Thinking, also known as RevThink. And I'm Joel Pilger, consultant at RevThink. What do you guys do for the audience that doesn't know anything about your company at all, in case they miss one of your many Facebook ads? <laughs> <laughs> right. We champion the creative entrepreneur. So we come alongside owners of uh, motion design studios, animation companies, production companies. to Web design, interactive yeah, companies. Sound design. But we, we basically, we come alongside owners to accelerate uh, their impact, their growth, their profitability in the industry. Well, it sounds good. Where do I sign up? Everybody <laughs> must want this. I'm learning from you, Chris. You don't, you don't need <laughs> That's to right. sign up. <laughs> oh, come on. All right. So the, the word consultant is sometimes used and mislabeled and sometimes has a bad so rap to it. Yeah, sure. So maybe you guys can go into a little bit more detail about what that means, like in layman's terms, because our audience is broad. Okay, so there's some people who have companies, some people who are part of large agencies, like ad agencies. So try to figure out that spectrum of people who might be listening to this podcast and describe it. I see you're pointing to Tim. So Tim, you've got the mic. No, I got to be honest with you. I don't always like the name consultant. I was in a meeting this afternoon and the guy said, I already have consultants. And I know I'm very different than the people that, that he's um, bringing in his office already because they have a specialty in finance or business administration, some MBA somewhere. And what I have is life experience in this industry. And I like to educate people uh, share my experience, and then build them up. So for me, what consultant means, or what for me, what RevThink does, is we come alongside the business owner and help them achieve their financial business requirements, or actually all business requirements. Um, but also our biggest focus is helping them achieve their career goals. How do you do that? Yeah, it's really great. You know, you know the trick is, is that most people forget to ask, what am I trying to achieve in this career? 
They work very hard at doing the day-to-day jobs, but they have not focused on the long-term perspective of what a career looks like because it has ins and outs, ups and downs, business owner, not business owner, all these things that happen in a career. As you know, you've had many seasons of it, but when you put it all together, you have a full career. So we try to be career-focused um, in people's lives and then give them the practical experience and practical needs to, to meet those. Joel, is there anything you want to add to that? No, I think that that pretty well nails it. But I mean, you know, I in, obviously in a former life, I also was a business owner running a studio of my own. And uh, yeah, I think to Tim's point, often a lot of guys that and, and ladies that are in the industry start a firm and they just want work. They want to make an impact. They want fame. They want fortune. They want freedom, something like that. But then it's usually after five or 10 years have gone by, uh, they're really busy. There's workaholism. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't know if they're actually like, am I doing it right? And am I having an impact like I originally set out to do? Uh, so we like to come alongside that and help put everything into context and say, hey, we can help uh, you achieve those long-term goals. Well, there's definitely a lot of crossover between, I think, what you guys are doing, what we're doing. We're just taking very different models. So I naturally have a lot of questions that people throw at me. So I'm just going to throw back at you guys. Yeah, love sure. to. Okay. So if I'm in the audience right now, I'm thinking, okay, this sounds pretty good. You guys have real practical experience versus uh, theoretical MBA, whatever, not poo-pooing anybody that's got a really yeah, fancy degree. That's yeah. cool. But you're also looking at it from a former business owner. So you're sensitive to the needs. And Tim, you didn't really talk about your background too much. Maybe you can give us a little glimpse of that. Yeah, sure. I started uh, my, my creative career in the, in the 90s. Um, I was at Imaginary Forces, and if you remember, Chris, we would collaborate back in those, those days, uh, sharing employees and such. Um, but that uh, initial kickoff of Imaginary Forces, I was one of the one of the original teams there. Um, so obviously, in what played, capacity? I was a producer, producer? originally, and okay. then I became the head of operations. Okay. Um, before I left the company. Okay. Um, from from just that experience, because of the time, the place, and all that Imaginary Forces was, and, and allowed us to get our hands on. A lot of my friends started their businesses, their own businesses. So um, I became like a freelance general helper, freelance CEO, I called myself back then, because they needed help with anything business, and Tim was would be willing to, to solve those problems. And that's really what started this idea of, of maybe I should just do this for a living, have a company, and start building up the solutions that people could use as they need to solve their problems. And Tim, I was a client of Tim's. That's how we originally oh, met. Yeah, so thickens. I was running. Yeah, exactly. I was running Impossible Pictures um, in Denver, and for the last year or two of running my studio, I hired Tim, and he was helping me figure things out and navigate where I was going. So okay, Joel's wait. a convert. Yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> He's one of the, the the hair club guys, but is also the president or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. exactly right. Okay, so let's get personal a little bit. Sure. What problems? And I encourage. I, I wish I had to sign up. One of them is uh, to get personal to be vulnerable and to tell stories. Yeah. And the best podcast we ever have is when people are willing to lay it out. So when people come here guarded, they don't say it. I, I almost don't even want to edit the episode. So you're going through some things. Can you tell us what you're going through and why did you decide to reach out to Tim? Like, did you guys know each other? What was the thing? What was the catalyst? So take us back there. Yeah. What year was this now? So let's see. I sold Impossible in 14. So this would have been probably 12 or 13. 2012 or 2013. And I was, you know, I was chugging right along. I had had almost a 20 year run. 
of Running Impossible Pictures, grown it to be about... Is that live action? So it was live action and motion design. Okay. Uh, and we were doing... We were agency-esque, you know, production company, agency, kind of that hybrid combo. And uh, I would say that, you know, I'd grown it to be about a $5 million firm, which in Denver I think was pretty remarkable. And a team of 25 folks. But wow. then, yeah, but mm. around year 18, I was just starting to, I don't know, drift, I think. Um, I just, my partner and I decided to separate and I was going to take the business forward. And I remember when I, I was talking to a rep and a, this rep, I was, of course, we all think our problems are about sales. <laughs> and I thought I had a sales problem. And uh, this lady, Carol, says, you know, do you know Tim Thompson? And I'm like, no, you should talk to Tim. He's a consultant. He's really great. And I remember thinking, I don't want to like what this guy has to say. Because I've been sold every which way to Sunday. And I'm not, I just got on the call thinking, I'm not going to like this guy. And I don't like this rep either. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, wait, both wait. of us. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. So there's a rep that you don't like. And a guy that you are, you have a prejudice against already because of uh, some charlatan's going to try and sell me some snake oil. Yeah. Right. And I've yeah. been there. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. And all I can tell you is after probably a 50 minute conversation, I hang up the phone. I can remember sitting in my car behind the hotel that I was going to be staying at that night. And I remember thinking, damn it. I said I wasn't going to like what he had to say. But he had got, he sort of like created an itch in me which really had a lot to do with where I was on in my journey. So that ultimately, within a year, I was selling my firm. So that was a huge change. And a lot of that had to do with, I'd kind of gotten it all out of my system, I think. After 20 years, I was just restless and I'd kind of done that, kind of done that, like I really wanna really just get up tomorrow morning and make another promo, yay. Okay, like I've done all that. I was really thinking about becoming a DP because I was really passionate about cinematography and I thought, well, how can I use my production company? I'll go be a DP. And that really wasn't a good option for me. Okay. I think because it's so familiar to you <laughs> that you're able to describe this thing, but I'm not getting a clear picture. And Tim's watching or looking at his watch, so he's going to have to bail at some point. No, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, you're getting Slack like, messages every oh, tweet. Oh, like, oh, a bad habit. Every time he checks his uh, <laughs> watch, I'm like, oh, it's got to wrap up. We just started, but goodbye. <laughs> okay. So you're dealing with certain things. You're, you're, you and your partner are separated. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But you decided to talk to him because there, there was something inside of you. You were looking for some kind of answer. What was that that you were looking for? And what did he say to you for you to go down that path? That's critical to me. Yeah. Well, I think after you've done something for 18 years and you've built this reputation and everybody in the industry knows you as, oh, yeah, you're the president of Impossible. And like you just can't really envision a future different than that. There's so much momentum but and direction. that's what you built up for the last yeah. 15, 18 years. Right. So why was that a problem? Well, because I knew there were just a lot of things changing, right? I had had some key people leave. I was trying to take the company in a new direction. I was saying, rather than having all these staff, maybe we should be much more dynamic, freelance-based, that sort of thing. Maybe I want to be a, a DP. So Obviously, there was just a lot of rumblings, and I think it was really—it oh, okay. was like my subconscious telling me this era of your life is coming to a close. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't comfortable with actually closing that chapter. 
And, and the question he started asking me is how? How should I do my company this way? How should I do my company that way? How? And the real, that was the problem. He was trying to figure out how to redo something of a company, and he wasn't asking the question, why the hell are you doing this to begin with? Yeah. Why did you get into this industry? What did you expect from it? And by the way, after 20 years, isn't that part done? Didn't you want to do anything more in this in this career, in this life? And that's where I think he thought, who the heck are you and why are you talking to me this way? Yeah. <laughs> I see. So you you sounded like you were getting restless running the company. Maybe you're feeling a little burnt out. I, I've, I've been there myself. I could totally relate to oh, that. Oh, I bet. Right? Yeah, totally. You do something for so long, you just think... Is this it? Is this my life plan? Is this the destiny that uh, the life that I imagined for myself? And so in enters Tim and he starts asking you these questions and he probably has kind of stopped you in your tracks because you thought, look, yo, I want to go from here to here. How do I do that? Right. Because I already thought this through or maybe it's this direction or that direction. And then he kind of says, before we start planning the trip, where are we going and why do we want to go there? Yep. Yep. Okay. So yep. that is that what drew you in? Yes. Yeah, and it just really got it, you know, kind of bothered me. I think it got me thinking deeper. And you know, about a year later, I'm approached by um, a startup company that says, "Hey, we we want to buy your firm and you and come join us." And I would have never been open to that if I hadn't started that sort of deeper inquiry of like, "Yeah, what is my place? Not only in the in this industry, but you know, in the world. What am I? What is my why? What is my mission?" Were you guys already working together at that point? No. Yeah. Well, yeah. When, when I sold. Oh, as, oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Not not as consultants. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. You were consulting for him. That's, yeah, that's correct. What, yeah. Right. Yep. So during that year, you kind of started to retune your thinking about what it is that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, what kind of truth did you discover? What I, did you want to do? Well, I, I think uh, you have to go fast forward almost another year. Because I went to work for the firm that bought Impossible. Okay, so you, you sold the company. Yep, sold the company and went to work for that company as part of an earnout. Where is this? This is in Denver. Okay, still, okay. still in Denver. All right. But it was a three-year earnout. But less than a year into that deal, <laughs> I was going, I mean, it was bad. Right. I was a horrible employee. Yep. Right? I was Most super miserable. <laughs> I was super stressed out. I, like, my health was... And I remember um, I called Tim because we were just friends staying in touch. And I said, uh, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> like, I'm I'm dying. And what's funny is, you know, rather than giving me the, a sympathetic ear, oh, yeah, that must be hard. He just immediately says, don't go start another production company. And I thought that was such a weird, like, uh, uh, like okay, what, huh? And he just said, you should come work with me. And that, again, that was because I think the larger story that uh, Tim really encouraged in me was the idea of a career is a whole lot bigger than even a business. You know, we have a job and then we someday turn that into, I'm going to start a business. And then the business is successful and it's all this. And then you realize, yeah, but you know what? All businesses come to an end and that's fine. You know, I mean, I did had this great run, but now there's this thing called a career. And the career is how can I actually impact and influence the whole industry. And that's what I started to get excited about and why I said, you know what? That's a really cool transition. Like, I'm out of here. So I, <laughs> I left the... Wait, wait. So you broke your contract? Yes. I had to walk away from a substantial part of that deal. Because right, so I knew... It's a three-year earnout. You're only yes. a year into it. That no. means you only got a third of the money. That's right. 
Um, that's that's <clears throat> because I got so clear. Theoretically, you'd have a third of the money. Really, the way earnouts work, you it's know, way it's towards the, end. Yeah, options and yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I will say wow. this: once my encouragement is to, to people out there is, once you get clear about what your real purpose and your mission is, start now, today. Because I realized, sure, I could hang out here for another two years, but then what? I mean, I can't just fake it and show up here every day for the next two years and pretend that I'm not, you know, ignoring my calling. So, well, was money an issue for you? Like you're married. Yeah. Yeah. Kids. One kid. Uh Uh, uh, And are you the sole breadwinner? Yes. Okay. So you had enough, enough runway to be able to afford to make this decision. Yes. Yes. But again, not that, um, I wasn't in the super well off sort of position, not some huge cash purchase or that kind of a thing. Um, but I also just, you know, after I've been an entrepreneur my entire life and I know one thing for sure, that if I'm seriously passionate and excited and clear, I will make it happen. I will stir it up. <laughs> and I'll say this too, a couple of things of why I encourage Joel to do certain things or the ideas that I have behind me that gave Joel some clarity of what might encourage him to go different directions is when you spend a, a career, a part, a large part of your life putting yourself into a job, uh, a company, a culture, an industry, um, you're, you spend most of that life taking. So if everyone's taking all the time, who's ever giving back? Who's ever, whoever's putting something into it so that other people can take? <clears throat> so I feel like if an industry has given you that livelihood, you have a responsibility to give back. So there are stages of our own career where that it's just time. It's time where you start thinking, now I have all this experience, I have all this, all this ability, and I can't leverage everything I have in a time value proposition. So now instead of just converting time to dollars that you do as you're earning, you start creating a proposal of value. How much value can I give back? How much value can I encourage others? What can we tap into? What could they tap into if they had my knowledge? So that ability to encourage the younger younger owners with a knowledge of a 20-year experience, how much better off would that, that younger owner be? That's what the opportunity was that Joel had. I saw it in him. Joel is beyond just a 20-year owner. He has the ability to be reflective in nature. So while he owned his business, he captured the knowledge as he, as he went along so he can reflect on those decision points. He knows why he did certain things, and he's willing to explain that to others. Not, not all business owners even have that ability. So those are the unique qualities. And when I found that in Joel and, and saw that he had that ability, then to be able to match the need that he had and the opportunity that we had and create another channel, another resource that can encourage the industry, that's why we, we partnered up and, and doing now what we're doing at RevThink. And thus far, it's, is it just the two of you or are there more than the two of you? No, we actually just uh, brought on a third consultant named Patrick Jager, who has also has a 20-year career, but he is a different different vertical. He has been 20 years in content creation. And a lot of our consultants and, and conferences that we do often lead to this, I, this other source. I want to be able to create content. So that this career that we have is somewhat a shadow of career of than the career we wanted to live out, which is content creators and win Oscars and Emmys. Instead, we're doing a side job, hoping that one day will come. Patrick has that ability to think like us, um, be a revolution thinker himself, and then be able to push forward people's ideas into new ways and new opportunities. 
So Patrick has joined us and we're trying to help people fulfill more pieces of that career by having Patrick join us. So it's awesome to have him. Yeah. And in addition, we also have several guys on our team that are, I call them our backstage players, uh, Jason, uh, Jakin, Emmett, uh, Ethan. Ethan. So these are guys that are really running uh, systems and routines behind the scenes. So as Tim and I are consulting, they may be uh, crunching numbers, running data, holding, you know, calling meetings and running all of these systems and procedures and routines that we like to put in place at our, at our clients. Yeah. Perfect. I think we covered a lot of the questions I normally would ask you. So let me, let me get into a couple other things here. One is, who are the kind of clients that you work with? Can you disclose that? What size companies are they in terms of dollar or, or people? And, yep. and then maybe we can get into some of the specifics about what you do for them. Yeah, I think our sweet spot, I would say, is motion design uh, studios and production companies. And then, of course, it gets into animation. It gets into sound design. It gets into content companies. Um, but that's really sort of the sweet spot. In terms of size, I would say most of our uh, clients are somewhere between a million and $12 million a year annual revenue. Um, they kind of fall in that in that range. Um, and then we actually do have a program that that services or helps um, smaller studio, studios that are below um, a million. Did I, did I answer the question? Oh, and I would say the size of those companies. I mean, a million dollar company is probably five people and you know, a, a 10 million company is probably more like 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so overall as a scope, we probably support, including the Jumpstart program, about 46 production companies at this point. Their gross receipts are somewhere in the range of 75 to $80 million annually. So we have a lot of information, a lot of processing in a very high range of this industry. The reason why we can do that level in that range is because we're, we're looking at industry trends we're collecting information as we go along, and we're trying to leverage these opportunities, information we have on behalf of truly the entire industry. That's why we produce a podcast and blogs. So we're just pushing information out there, things that we learn and things that we know. We're trying to give it away as fast as we, we, we've gained it so that other people could take advantage of it. Um, really, truly, we have so many anomalies in our in our consulting because beyond these production companies, we do have a company that creates amusement park rides. We have a company that does web interface. We have a companies that do audio and sound uh, creation, environmental sensory experiences. We have all these. Truly, the one thing in, they have in common is they're all creative, and a creative person, again, as you know, the reason why you start the business is somewhat to control the creative output. You have an idea. You don't want anyone to tell you how to do it. You think you could do it better than anyone else. So I start a business so no one else is my creative director. Stop talking about Joel. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty. Yeah. But the the reality is, is then then you own a business. Yeah. So there's this other nature that has to come out. And luckily for me, starting at Imaginary Forces, having a wonderful creative director like Kyle Cooper, who forced creative to win, yet as a producer, you also had to make a profit. To be able to live both and make it an and proposition, proposition instead of an or proposition is the, is what I learned early on that I still leverage today on behalf of our clients. So that's okay. really the, the talent that, that we're able to acquire. Okay. Let's say I'm in your sweet spot. Let's say I'm a $5 million company. Yeah. And what is the most common objections that this entrepreneur owner is going to have about working with you guys? 
do you, you mean three. what objections they have with our advice or, no, no, no. or, or <laughs> no, why no. wouldn't they work no with let's us? do this in stages okay yeah, you know i'm sure there's those hangouts <laughs> as well but before we get to your advice yeah what are the top three objections well the i'll just put it in this way the hurdles we f- we find when working with someone initially the initial assessment is number one they think they know everything so they have four years experience or 10 years experience at their company, how could we possibly know what they're going through? Because they have such a unique experience. And I think that most people have this revelation after working with us that they realize, oh, wait a second, there are patterns and systems that work for everyone. Um, the other part is, is they have a fear that we're going to make them that we're going to be a quote unquote a consultant. We're going to take all the energy and the creative ability and that unique quality out of them and dumb them all down so that they can just make profit. And although profit's important, that is not our focus. Our focus is whatever that owner's life achievement wants to be, we want to support them and then provide the means to make that happen. So it's what we think backwards from most people or the problems that most people have so that we can actually help them achieve it. So our uh, the, the saying we go back to all the time is the best way to deal with the future is to create it. Um, so we want people to understand what the mechanisms are that they have to control and create the career that they wanted to. You don't have issues about time or money or challenges? Like when they first talk to you, it's like, oh, I can't afford this or you're too expensive or whatever you, it is. You know, there's definitely the thought of... I already have leadership, or how much could that possibly cost? Um, I And it is an interesting conversation to talk about the value proposition because it's what they're not earning where we would make our money or where they're not savings that we can find the money. So we know we cover ourselves plus more in every proposition we have. Most people, some people don't have that mechanism to recognize efficiency as a gain or profitability coming from something else because they've tried with all of their might to make the money and they couldn't do it. Again, how could somebody else possibly do it? Especially someone that's never worked at their company. Um, that's probably, wouldn't you say that's the hurdle that's been come across? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it is uh, common. I think um, something else I've observed is that there are, a, I mean, the, the industry's hard. It's, it's really challenging being an owner. I mean, it's no, it's no joke. And a lot of times there are certain owners that are looking for uh, sympathy. I mean, they're looking for an ear to bend and they want, uh, you know, misery loves company. Um, those are not really good engagements for us because we are so focused on what's, what are the steps we can take? How can we actually change things? What can we do? Um, so we, 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 you know, sometimes the objection is just simply, no, I just want somebody that I can talk to and, uh, and feel better about, but I don't really want to change anything. So that's not a good fit for you, obviously. That's right. <laughs> no. I mean, is it always that obvious that they communicate that to you? Or is there something that they say that's a trigger and you're like, oh, that's not a good fit for us? Responsiveness. That's yeah, probably the best trigger. When we, um, if someone asks us a question and then we give them advice and they don't respond to it or they don't believe it and want to try something else, we pro- we know right away, like, how why would this work anyway? If we're, if we're trying to pr- give you value or recognize the value in your company... And no matter how much we talk, we can't convince them. So one of the rules that we have is we don't sell ourselves because it's really we catch ourselves moment like we're pushing way too hard to convince somebody we know what we're doing. If we have to convince somebody, we can't do it. The best clients are the ones that ask us the questions. 
they just want it. They're hungry and ask and ask and ask. We have information. We have knowledge or we can go find it. But if we have to convince you that you need the knowledge, that's not learning anyway. And I, I think you might have tipped me on this, but I'm going to ask just to be clear. Uh, I take it you don't charge hourly, uh, that somehow your thing must be on net gain and net savings. Uh, are you charging based on that? Um, it is a value proposition, and it's somewhere in between because you can't just do net gain and net savings. Um, there has to be some sense of a commitment. The, we we do monthly retainers. Monthly retainers. So we, is it different for each company based on need or size? Or yeah, we have flat? a few rules of, of the engagement that we know that are important to the business owner. So we don't step on their toe, earn more than they earn, take larger percentages than they can afford. Um, and we have different ways of getting to that formula. Some people prefer flat rate. Some people want a sliding scale. Some people, and we're willing to listen to it because we know what we're doing and we recognize what it's like to be a business owner to make those decisions and have the impact of our, our quote unquote expense on their book. Um, and until that time comes that we can convert, they don't, they, they have a sense that we're taking instead of giving. So it doesn't take long, and we have some systems over the last 12 years that quickly engage and have them recognize what's possible. And so it doesn't take long, but that is kind of one of the first questions we're always asked. How do I pay for this, and how can I afford it? So you need to look at probably numbers always. before you can propose yeah. any kind of engagement. Yeah, we right? Well, yeah. <clears throat> um, well, for two different reasons. I'll just say that. Like, we don't look at the numbers to propose the engagement. We have to look at numbers and many things just to find out what the problems are. Quite frankly, if we can't solve the problems, we're, we're not going to, why would we get started? And numbers tell so much information. It's so easy to recognize patterns and thoughts and ups and downs. So we really look at it genuinely to figure out wh- how the company is doing and what the problems might be that the owner knows or doesn't know. But yeah, clearly we also know that what's a healthy amount that we wouldn't take. I mean, we obviously would want as much as possible, but we can't just go as, as much as possible. So, so are you looking at the profit and loss statements? Is that what you're looking at? P&L, balance sheet, um, client, yep. revenue, client retention. Sales. Um, how many years of data are you looking at? Well, the last three years are probably best. But you know what it is? Like people, um, especially business owners, they want to believe something that often isn't there. Um, so one pattern I recognize in my career is most companies go out of business the year after their best year ever because they're looking at a pattern of gain, 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 and then they have a setback and they figure it's all to hell. But they haven't often they didn't adjust for what the reality is. They've been looking at last year instead of this year, and they burn through every ounce of, of possibility and asset and cash that they have. So m- many people call us the year they're going down and trying to figure out the system is. So we just put in a way so that they can see. The that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know, Chris, it happened to you. <laughs> He's on the ropes. No, actually, yeah. I hired my business coach on our upswing. Yeah. I just said to my wife, we have money. Uh, this is the time to spend yeah. because this decision will be much harder when times are lean. Yeah. It, it here is feel, great that way. He, you know, he puts the system in place so you can see it. Mm-hmm. Same idea, same path. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. smart. So smart. That's steal, That's called stealing opportunity. I like that. I stole an opportunity. Before we continue, here's John Roth. Hey, yo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the pro membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs 
which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The pro membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. Okay, um, I have to imagine, but you guys tell me, is there a resistance to, I just met you guys. Now you want to see three years of my P&L. Like, who are you? I don't have that kind of trust. And, well, you know, people don't even show their own employees their P&L. Well, it's not like we're cold calling. Hey, send me right, your thing and we'll do yeah. it. They right. called us. They to called start you. With. And but, so we have to. Yeah. But so, we also do, we, we do it for lots of clients, for lots of studios and even in, in you know, businesses and other verticals. So there's always an NDA and we obviously know how to do this and know how to be sensitive and and we're only here to help so you know if if we look and the numbers tell us things we're just here to share and say here's what we see here's here's where you stack up in the industry compared to firms that you're competing with um that's a that's a really valuable perspective yeah and we have i mean it's obviously it's a professional environment so many people share their books with their cpas there's obviously that, you that exposure to. too. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't go into a doctor and say, I have an itch, and then not be willing to show them your, the rash, right? Like there's just a reality of how do you understand what the, what the terms are, where the problems are. It's just what's part of it. Yeah, so, I think that's a little bit more than just showing them the rash. <laughs> You're saying like, I'm going to do a DNA test on you right yeah. now. And you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Well, and, and I think, you know, truly after 12 years of experience and knowing and seeing and doing, I, there's, I think there's more comfort today than there was initially um, in those engagements. But the, the reality is this, the answers are often in the books or in the client reports or li- talking to a producer. Um, and we haven't poached. I think uh, integrity is a huge part of the business. And although I don't have an MBA, in, I don't have an MBA, a master's in business, I have a master's in theology. So there's a, even just a part of who I am and what, who I want to be in the world that I'm living out. And that integrity is a big part of it. So initially, integrity was what was getting me in the door. Now I think integrity plus reputation, I, I think it makes it a little bit easier now. Plus results? Results are definitely there. <laughs> yeah. I don't, All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm sitting there in the audience. I'm thinking, oh, hey, these guys sound pretty cool. I, I get the idea here. Can you share some stories and abstract names and dates and things like that to protect the innocent? <laughs> and just share a couple of stories of a breakthrough that you've had with a client or maybe a real challenge where you knew it wasn't going to work and not everything can always work out, right? Yeah. So can you guys share a couple of stories and get into the juice of this? Like It's so hard to, it's hard to narrow down because I'm sitting here thinking, just pick there's one. so many stories. I didn't say the best one, just anyone. I'll tell the success and you can tell the failure. <laughs> I like that. So you're going to peg him as the failure? Yeah, yeah. Say, no, you have one, is, you can't you have one in that. mind, apparently. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a common one. So this would be an easy way to understand it, but I have someone specific in mind. Okay. Um, a lot of people that um, start a production company have production experience so that they know how to run a production budget and then they run profit and they gain profit, obviously, because they spent less than, the, less than the client gave them. And they're really confused on if they've done a profitable project every time, one after the other after the other, why don't they have profit in their company? 
Um, so there's this conversion that needs to take place between the ability to run a business finance and production finance and what happens in the middle. So uh, an example that I have is when someone had a rate card way of managing their employees that wasn't based in reality, but they were doing a time tracking system based on actual hours. And when you apply actual hours to a false number, you, you basically have a fake number. So you have to, the systems you have to have in place often have to be relatable so that you're getting the results you expected. But if you take two unrelated items and you multiply them, it's still, still somewhat crazy. So those are the items that we know and see. We can, we can recognize and see when that conversion's happening or not happening, and they get down to the reality. Um, what we put in place, on, honestly, is, is a, a lot of trust so that you're telling the producers actually what things cost, and, you t- and the producer has to tell us back what actually they spent. Even if they went over budget, we want to know the truth so we can adapt and change and compensate for it. So those are often, I have someone very specific in mind, but that's often a a very common problem in our industry too. Ooh, wow, okay, that seems like something really practical that you have a really good way to track uh, what your employees are doing, but what you think you're charging is totally in outer space. Outer space. Okay, so you need to connect those two systems and give them visibility on what is actually made. And it's then, the fantasy. Yeah, I love the, that word, and, visibility. And then the third piece is what the business needs. So that's the project needs. You have to add the, the other piece of what the business needs to make sure that the business need is taken care of in the project as well. Okay. So those three systems. So now I understand that's why I don't have any money in the bank account at the end of the year, even though I thought I did. Okay, now I'm screwed. Now, now what do I do? Because you just made me aware of the problem, right? Now what yeah. do I do to, to correct that? What's the magic sauce? It's proactivity. I mean, it's getting visibility and making decisions in advance and creating the future rather than reacting to it. So um, when you set you set simple routines based on some of these uh, habits like Tim is describing, you can dial the results you're looking for. You know, you can say we're going to make 5% more here every single time. And you get to the end of a year and you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so those are, you know, again... I'm not sure the exp- the specific example you're pointing to, but um, that's that's one result that I would say is sort of a a success story that yeah. we see often. And that's a common problem. Is the reason why you brought it up? It's it, well, it's a problem that you can systematically. It's a, I can easily explain it. Right. Um, often problems are honestly uh, business owners have a lot of loss aversion, so they make really foolish decisions based on a, a pattern that they've seen and they're feeling about it. So I've lost 10 projects in a row. Woe is me, 11th project's coming in. And they'll double down or do something foolish or spend extra money or walk away or not walk in the room with confidence. That's way more abstract to talk about, but that's also a very big reality. We don't have that. We're not at your company. We didn't see those results. We're just looking at the actual utilization of the situation right now and what's smart and the best way to go forward. So we have an objective point of view that we can bring in situations Yeah, as well. that's the power of consultants, right? Yeah. You're not mired in the muck and how we got here. You're just looking at, this is what the data tells us, dude. Yep. Either the data's lying or we just don't understand what we're getting ourselves into. Exactly. I was just going to touch on something that, maybe a, an example. Again, I'm thinking of somebody in mind, but I'll keep the names, uh, <laughs> protect the innocent. Yeah. That I think almost every owner thinks he has a sales problem oh, yeah. right oh i like where this is going <laughs> yeah exactly all right how much time we got yeah exactly you, you yeah, i just looked at my watch <laughs> all right, don't do come on we gotta stay yeah, in this one your flight's right. in how long <laughs> yeah. um no, so 
the, okay, so what's interesting about this? Wait, wait, explain that. Right. Because there's going to be a lot of people in our audience who are like, what does he mean a sales problem? A sales problem. Okay. Well, everyone has everyone a sales problem. Everyone does have a sales problem. That's oh, so right. If they you are. don't do sales, you have a major problem. <laughs> yes. Well, so sales is one ingredient. Okay. We have seven that we work with. And if you're weak in any one of those ingredients, it'll kill your firm. But sales is the one that's so obvious. It's just like screaming at you. But most studio owners, when they see, they sense they have a problem, they see they have a problem, there's this knee-jerk reaction that says, sales. Sales will fix that. Sales solves all problems. Yeah. Well, it, it does in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Well, it, it sort of does. Okay, let's okay. talk about that. But Maybe can, we can argue about something. Yeah, it's beguiling, I think, uh, because it's not that simple. All right. Okay, but I will say that often what's really going on with a sales problem is you actually have a marketing problem. And you might even have a production problem. You might even have an operations problem. Okay, so... What's fun is to uh, really diagnose what's actually going on and then come in and as you're, as you're fixing things, uh, when you start to see results show up in sales, it's really fun. So firms that might be, you know, like I, I can, I'm thinking of a, of a client studio I'm working with that they were just over a million dollars and they've been hovering at, you know, 1.1, 1.2. And when I came in and talked to them about their goals, they said, yeah, we think we want to grow. And we identified that $2 million would be a really good place for them to be based on their, their priorities and their values. That was just a, we knew that was going to be the sweet spot for them. And it took about 18 months, you know, and it was finding the right EP. It was putting in a whole marketing automation thing. It was hiring a new producer and putting in, you know, various tools and things. But, you know, in the span of 12 or 18 months to see your revenue double... That's pretty exciting. I mean, that's fun. Kind so of. what was it? What was it that was, was it all those things? Yeah, no, it's many pieces so and parts. So basically, you kind of helped to change over the entire staff, it sounds like, or all the key players, right? Not not, the, not no. really. Not, no. to, not one to two million. Uh, to go from four to eight million, you are often restructuring creative. You have to, you have to think totally You're a different company. Very. You're, you're playing in the minor leagues and you want to go to the yeah. majors yes. and the majors play very differently. That's, but, a, and that's your a cultural core, upheaval. Yeah. You know, your core group through. can function, you know, up to probably $4 million. Um, even if you started out of school together, didn't know any better, 4 million is a capable ability. But if you want to get to eight, all the rules change. Yeah. No, right. in this case, this was, uh, you know, three principals, a support staff of three, and then a network of freelancers. Um, but what's interesting is going from one to two million, uh, I think we added one or two staff um, that I, the executive producer hire obviously is a big finding that person, vetting that person, negotiating and putting that deal in place. Um, and then coming alongside that person to coach them on sales and routines and habits and then just negotiating and pitching and <laughs> the whole sales conversation, all that stuff. Um, I mean, you can tell this is kind of what gets me fired up is um, but, and the also, marketing and sales side. Another reason why sales doesn't solve all problems is if I could do the same amount of work and make more profit, wouldn't that be better than, than working twice as hard and making the same amount of money? So if you're losing 10% of every project, I would rather lose 10% of 100,000 than 10% of 10 million, right? So there's a reality to really where you are, how you function as a company, and how you understand where the money's being spent before you just keep on adding volume to that problem. So helplessly lost but making good time is a, lo- a large part of what companies are doing. They don't recognize how volume would increase 
their inefficiencies, where I think that if you structure the inefficiencies, you can control what you do have. How do you best function with what you are earning instead of functioning with the dream of, I could sell and solve this problem? Because if you could double your sales every year, why would you ever stop, right? right. Okay. Maybe you want to say something? Go ahead. Oh, you want to do <laughs> <laughs> Something really important. He's been I, dying I, to do that. I, I want to say That's I'm really awesome. thirsty. No, I'm good. Thank you. All right. So here's the question I have for you. I really want it to be story-based, and so I feel like this is very high-level. Yeah. And can you just I, – I know it can be difficult for you to do, but I'm able to, like, pull out my own stories. Not that I want to do that in this conversation, but things that – here's something very specific. Here's exactly how we solved it, the the pain points and the challenges, and so that we can walk away. Like, you know, Kier talks to me about having a repeatable story. Right? having a repeatable story so that somebody walking away from this is going to say rev think they did that that and for this person and that's exactly what happened these are very broad uh, you guys are painting like a very but broad it, yeah so, we're conceptual yeah, yeah it's, it's very it's, it's theoretical can so you drill Joel, it down stories is an easy one what's difficult is i um yeah shoot well, I'll just tell you the filter I have is that I feel like people know who we're working with. And then as we talk, they imagine who that is. And I don't want to make have people make those assumptions. So I'd rather have you ask a question about you specifically and me give you that advice than for people to speculate who I'm talking about. I don't know how else to say it, but there's a lot of speculation around who we're talking about because they want to hear the... Because they're going to go through your client roster and say, it right. must be that person. And we can't dish. Right. Like we just, it can't be who we are that we dish about our clients. I don't know how else to say it, but it really, that that's why people trust us. So how do we get around that okay, hurdle? Okay, how about this? I'll share a story about me personally, and then maybe you guys will find a way to reflect something that's happened where you won't betray anybody's trust. Trust is paramount. I get that. Yeah. We don't want to do that. We don't want to create gossip amongst our friends and competitors, right? That's totally fine. And, and the benefit of, of telling a specific story is that, that someone can imagine themselves in that role. Yeah, it needs to be really relatable because if I'm putting myself, okay, like say I'm a hostile host here, which I try not to be sometimes. I'm listening to this and saying, yeah, yeah, this is like a business one-on-one, guys. Yeah, Come yeah. on, there's no magic here. Come yeah, on, control right. your expenses. I get it. Have visibility. Align these things. Yeah, yeah I'm going to give you a percentage of my net. Are you kidding me? Right. right? So I, I need to, something a little more tangible like, oh, I, I know what they're talking about. Well, that would be amazing. So here's my story. So I don't know what year this was, but we were hovering around $2.2 million. And I've told this story before. And, and there's no secret behind it. And we were like, great not a lot of employees making a lot of profit like profit in like in the bank profit and that's when um i was like let's charge but then something happened we couldn't get out of this 2.2 million block and we were winning jobs very easily around the two hundred thousand dollar mark and we just couldn't get past that bubble i just couldn't figure it out like why are we losing prior to that we're closing 60 70 percent of those opportunities coming in the door but north of that 300, 350, 400, we just couldn't close. We're down to like 10%, 15%. It was really frustrating because those are really good jobs. That's when I brought in Kier. And all Kier said was, run me through your pitch process. Obviously, you're getting plenty of opportunities. So it's not a sales problem. You're just not closing. So I was like, yeah, I've been doing this for a few years. I know what I'm talking about. So I tell him how we do it. That's when he says, that sounds insane to me. He didn't use those words. But that's what I heard. It's like, that's insane. How is it that you can do a conference call like that and expect to know or have a clear picture as to what the client wants? And I always thought at that point in time, 
you kind of just use your intuition and you paraphrase things that they say you get through the conference call and then the real work begins and there were rules of engagement that I imagined that were just not true like I, I didn't know I could just ask the client what is it that you want why would you pick us just, just describe to me what it is so that I can go make this thing for you instead we were like okay it's cool it's 30 seconds it's due Tuesday great we would go back put every designer on it come up with a, like a gazillion solutions and some were right some were wrong but they were just guesses Yeah. so after coaching me through that and really listening to how I do the calls it radically transformed our company within I'm probably like in the very next call we would do it differently and that year we went to from 2.2 to like 3.9 million that's right it's very clear I know these points is there something like that you can share so a few years ago I had this client and they were they were building themselves up to be a pretty big production company Um, the owner knew what he wanted to do and he actually had plenty of advisors um, friends in the industry a couple of partners at that time and they knew everything they wanted to, 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 they had a desire to accomplish a certain financial goal or business goal in the line. Um, so they started hiring key employees thinking that the answer was, if I hired enough people over $200,000 a year, I have the right people in place and they'll do the job for me. The reality was is um, when they hired their first EP, although the person was paid well, they weren't getting certain results. So quickly, they thought, we're burning a lot of cash, let's fire that person. So that person go, and what they did is they trashed that person. They don't know what they're doing, they came from so-and-so, they had a good reputation, that's their fault. Um, so they hired the second EP, and the second EP had an amazing track record from where they came from. Uh, very uh, strong uh, personality, clearly knew how to leverage, pers- leverage what's there. But in this case, the, the EP was conflicting with the creative director, and they couldn't come together on the pitches. So after months and months and months, the politics of that situation being very hostile, the EP quit and walked away. So that's the second EP? Second EP. All right. So they're searching for their third EP. They find a person that has a you know a very nice person. Um, the reality is that EP was a producer. They didn't have any vision, any understanding. So they they got along with everyone, and that, that, that producer was willing to do whatever was asked of them. I'll, I'll fill out that report. I'll make that phone call for you. But they had no initiative. So three, three strikes in one year, they're out. Um, they call a friend of mine and say, hey, do you know any EPs? And my friend says, you should call Tim. So they actually called me thinking I was an EP. And they said, hey, we have this job, whatever. I said, okay, what do you want me to do about that? And they said, well, you know, would you be willing to come in for an interview? And I had to explain to them, I'm not an executive producer. I know this industry and kind of told them my story. And they thought, well, still, it's interesting. And our friend told us to talk to you. Come on in. And I sat down with the owner, and I heard the owner's story. And the reality is, the owner had to get out of the way. The owner was imagining themselves and everyone in these situations. Hey, when I work with this AP, when I worked with this AP, and when I worked with this AP, I can get these results. The reality is, you have to trust the people you hire, especially if they have two hundred thousand uh, dollar income. They have the experience they need to. You should capitalize on all of their experience and then support them, give them all the support they need to be their cheerleader and let them grow and develop and thrive. So coming alongside and trusting the people you hire, not yourself to be in the way, really turn the company around. So what's interesting is we pulled someone from outside of that vertical. Um, So this was, let's say it was like a live action company. They pulled someone out from motion design that didn't necessarily have that, that connectivity. And in this case, this person was such a unique person 
had drive and understanding and connections, although didn't know specifically these clients, had the ability to convert. And I got in the way for a year. I made sure that that person was protected. I supported them, gave them understanding, and I would go sit with the owner and convert the knowledge back and forth. And the company, four times the revenue in an 18-month period. So you're running interference to make sure that the new hire had the support and almost in a way, not, I don't want to say protection, I don't know what the word is, but the support to go and do their job. Just do their job. And what it was is, it wasn't interference, what it was was a cheerleader. Because the owner is right, they do know, and they are, their name is on the door in a lot of ways, right? So it is them that is driving in the clients. That's the trust that the clients are giving that that person will be there, but also have to be the cheerleader of this person's ability and their, their own connections and their own understanding. So to be a cheerleader for both, Instead of letting that those politics, that hostile politics, or wasn't that person bad? They didn't know what they're doing. That they had gotten the pattern of for all their EPs. They're making their EPs fail. They're actually trying to make the EPs prove to them that they are worth two hundred thousand. Instead of recognizing, if I give you two hundred thousand and you can give me ten times return, I'll give you three hundred thousand and see if I can't get more. Oh, right? I get it. So it's really knowing that conversion and that idea and that support. Um, that's probably one of my favorite stories because it's people that I, I fell in love with. You yeah. know, that, and I loved all the people that are there, and we figured out empowered, uh, empowered everyone in the process, and uh, yeah, and good results. They're really good results. So in this case, you're like the whisperer. You don't deal with owners who have executive producer problems. You deal with executive producers who have owner problems. Yeah, that's funny. So yeah. you had to fix that. Yeah, that's right. Because th- nobody could succeed under the environment yeah. until the owner changed. That's right. And it's probably similar to your own experience where that you were getting in your own way and an outsider came and told you, hey, Chris, you have a, you have a pitch problem. And you couldn't hear yourself speaking. Someone else had to, had to come in there and then know that you could do it. If your consultant uh, didn't believe in you or was trying to make you do what he does or she does, then what, what would you get out of it? But it's who you are and getting the most out of you is, the, is that opportunity. Well, honestly... The reason why uh, I, I think this is going to make sense to a lot of people is entrepreneurship can be a very lonely business. It, who do you turn to? You can't call your competitors and say, hey, I'm, I lost a pitch to you, so do you mind sharing your pitch deck and your process? And <laughs> Hey, next time, can you record your phone call just so I know? And I started the company almost out of school. So it wasn't like... I was stuck in my ways. I just didn't know a better way. Yeah, you were inventing it as you went along. Yeah, and until and that's exactly how it was. It was trial by error. So let me be a little more aggressive next time. Let me try this. Yeah. I would ask friends, you know, obviously not that successful friends apparently. They're like, well, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you just got to tell them what to do. And that, <laughs> that wasn't the solution at all. Right. Just and, need to present better ideas. You know, so really it was about what he taught me how to do was to communicate how to ask questions and how to listen and that sounds really basic and it's a lot harder than you think but we would go through all these things you know i love what you just said because one of the things i i say is that most of our problems is we're forgetting to ask the questions so instead it sounds kind of funny but the way we think is is we're not providing the answers we're providing the the questions and as we provide the questions whatever the answer is we go with it um, and then hopefully as we grow with our clients that they're learning how to ans- ask their own questions. So it's teaching the questions 
is really the key to understanding and unlocking a lot of issues people have than providing basic answers. That's probably why I don't like the word consulting, because most people assume, like even in, with Joel's story, I was going to give him the right answer. And instead, I just gave him a lot of questions to ask himself. And it irritated him a little bit more. And then he he broke up with his company. And then he broke up with his career. And then he actually fulfilled what he was destined to do. like love and teach and provide information for an industry that had given him a lifestyle, he's giving it back. Um, so that's probably the key. Oh, that's perfect. And on that note, I think we need to let Tim go. So Tim, yeah. thanks for stopping by. Yeah, the of course. Good to see you guys. Good All luck. Right, Have a great flight. Safe Thank flight. you so much. All right, man. Take care. What, what, what do you want to talk about now? Um, I guess I'm curious, you know, the people in your audience, like where are they coming from? Where are they maybe in the industry, um, are they employees? Are they solopreneurs, freelancers? Um, because everybody's on this journey, and I want to make sure that I, you know, share or reflect on um, what I can share for your audience. It's a little harder for me to say with the data that we have because on the podcast, we don't actually hear back from people. Right, it sure. just goes out, and then you don't know what happens. The only time we're going to hear back is when somebody mentions us on Twitter or sends me a direct message like, love the last podcast. And But that's a very small sampling, and they're not going to get into specifics. They just talk about, like, that was a good story. I related to that moment, right? Where, we're, where we hear more and see more is inside the Facebook uh, pro group that we have. Uh-huh. And then I know who they are. They're real people, and they have real businesses. So yeah, sure. I would say that most of them are... In a, in a different bracket than the ones that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're probably between a couple hundred thousand and maybe the the high six figures, but not cracking seven yet. Okay. Most yep. of them are pretty small operations, uh, a, f- a handful of employees or uh, a freelance team. So it's like one owner and maybe like one full-time person and a couple like uh, freelancers that they can call and get help. But a lot of cre- creative entrepreneurs um, that are just in those early seasons of their career. Yeah, so some of them are in the web space. A lot of them are in mm-hmm. the digital space. Some of them are in video motion graphics production, and they offer something slightly different. Mm-hmm. And some of them are developers or in the app space. Some of them are content strategists and SEO experts. So here's a question. Would you say they all have a sales problem? Like, <laughs> Meaning, I'll get to the bigger question. Do they, is there a bias that it's just assumed that everybody wants to grow? Everybody wants to... Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to be bigger, better, faster, cooler. That's kind of a given. I would say that most people, I don't, maybe some people just want to maintain a lifestyle. Yeah. And they're okay with a lifestyle business. Yeah. And that's critical for them. So that's where family, uh, you know, whether it's like they have some kind of spiritual pursuit. I don't know what it, what it is, but they're okay. I would say, though, that the majority of them are in the space to grow in every aspect. Uh, they they need support, they need a, a you know a revenue stream of a pipe sales pipeline that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They do need that. And how much do they struggle in those running wearing all those hats? Because what I find is I call I have this thing I call the painful season, which is you know around half a million dollars or less. Um, sometimes it's even below a million dollars, where the creative entrepreneur is so fragmented and wearing so many different hats that there's workaholism, uh, burnout, um, also just frustration because they get stuck in these patterns where even after three years, four years, five years, 
they there's this inner sense of I'm not I'm not crushing it. I something I know I could be doing better, and if I could just get to this point, I would be able to afford support staff and get my life back. Do you find that common in the I, industry? I think so. I think for I can't obviously speak for everybody, but a lot of people are managing just runway and cash flow, mm-hmm. and so you can't sit there and think about oh, I could hire this person to help me out because I don't know if I'm going to make two months rent or, you know, something like that. Yeah. My runway is so short. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, so I was in that mode, I think for about, uh, six years. And interestingly, like you talked about stealing the opportunity when you had some money and you hired uh cure, I think you said at the time, um, about year six for me, I think I had reached, I don't know, two fifty, three hundred thousand $300,000, which was pretty good. This is back in the uh, mid nineties. But I, um, I enrolled in some entrepreneurial coaching, and it was a three-year program that actually brought me out here to L.A. once a quarter. And what I learned were, was sort of like my MBA, if you will. And the, the whole premise of, this, uh, of what I was taught was how to work less but make more. And that really set me on a trajectory where I realized, wait a minute, my future is about me getting clear about my genius and focusing and delegating everything that I suck at so that I could actually create the life that I wanted to create. And that just, that set me on this, uh, you know, journey for the next 15 years where I was able to grow my studio and build that team and um, accomplish everything we were able to accomplish. Um, But I find a lot of people struggle getting out of that painful season uh, because there's it's almost like the things that you uh, the things that you the things that you learn along the way that make you successful uh, actually prevent you from making further progress because you get so entrenched in well this is what I know and this is what works therefore I have to keep doing it and sometimes to reach the next level you actually have to stop doing what works and find a new thing that works better but of course that's there's a lot of fear that comes with that. I know how you can provide value to our audience right now. Hmm. These are questions that I get a lot. So let's hear what your take on this. And I would just be keeping mental score myself. Like, oh, I did that one right. Or maybe we differ in opinions. Okay? <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So Go. here's the first one. And, and I think this is about the limiting, limiting beliefs of the creative person. Uh, one is there's a sense of guilt for charging to do the things that you love to do. Hmm. And if I were to ask somebody, okay, what do you love to do? Well, I, I love to spend time with my kids, let's just say. And I say, okay, we'll go charge money for that. And I'm like, why would I ever do that? Like, that's pleasure that I get. And I think a lot of creative folks derive real meaningful purpose and pleasure from doing what it is to do. They could be building websites, coding something, doing an illustration, designing a logo. And so when we talk about the issue of money and charging value of the work that you do, there's this hang up. Give us some advice sage advice or some sage advice yes well i think um first of all i think it's it's paramount for the creative entrepreneur to get clear about what i call your genius so this is something that you do these things that you do that uh that give you energy back they you know you you create really big results when you do it and here's the other little trick it's often the thing that you do that you take for granted. 
you're like, well, you know, I, yeah, sure. Sure. I design logos. Yeah, sure. I animate this thing. It's like, yeah, whatever. But other people look at it and they go, whoa, dude, when you do that thing, that's what I call your genius. Now, I would say that if you feel guilty about charging for something that you enjoy, you really just have to get, get out of your own way and look at the perspective from what people out there need. The people that need what you do, they really need it. There's a need. You're actually providing a very, very real solution. Um, there's a famous quote from, I think, Marianne Williamson, um, that uh, you don't serve, you're not serving the world by playing small. So having this sort of humility about, yeah, I'm really great at this, but you know, it's just my little thing and it's really not worth a lot of money. Like, get, get over yourself. <laughs> um, realize that there is this inner genius in you and money is really the residue of you expressing your genius in the world and creating value. And so money is the thing that allows you to do it more and to do it better and to actually connect with the real needs that need to be met. So the reason people charge a lot of money is because they've really identified the need and where their genius intersect. Mm, okay. A lot of good points in there. Here's my, my take on that very same issue. And this, I see a lot probably more than you do in, in terms of like, because we have a very broad audience. My thing is this, like if I ask most creative people, what is it that you really want to do? Most of them will say, I want to make what I do better. I want bigger clients. I want to make it better art. And I, I love to provide better service. I said, well, the key to all of that is to charge more. Because wouldn't you like to have a couple of assistants help you? Wouldn't you like to be able to go and shoot original photography versus using stock? Wouldn't you like to fly out to meet your client and present in person with 3D mock-ups instead of doing it over Skype? The thing that affords all that stuff is to be able to charge more and then we get back into you, get over it. The second thing is the cultural thing that it's ingrained within us in most cultures, East and West, to be humble, to be humble. You're too big for your britches. Uh, you're, you're an arrogant, a white, whatever it is they want to say. And so we're fighting against society and culture not to talk about ourselves, not to take uh, notice of our own gifts. Well, I was, you just reminded me of this. I wrote an article a while ago about this idea of charging. And in it, I asked this question. Somebody in the market that you're in is known for charging the highest prices. Why shouldn't that be you? Well, they, somebody's going to charge the highest price. For sure. Somebody already does. And, Somebody and, already does. And there's many tiers above yeah. these people. And they, they often fire back. Well, they have this and they went to that school and they have a fancy office. They have this great portfolio. They've got okay. all these awards. And here's my comeback is, look, charge as if you're the best. So you have to be the best. Like if you want to be the best, you're going to charge more than everybody else. So the sooner you just snap out of it. Plus, I think there's this game we can play with ourselves. Charge as much as you can possibly charge. And then when the client chokes on the number What's your challenge to say, no, you don't understand. I'm going to create something so freaking brilliant, so awesome. It's going to produce this amazing result for you. And the client looks at you and says, okay, okay, go for it. Now what do you have to do? You have to deliver. You have to 
raise your game to meet that expectation. And isn't that what this journey is all about? Grow and learn and adapt and like become bigger, better than what you were before. And charging more money is one of those ways that you do it. I mean, I always, every time I got handed a new project running my studio, I was always trying to find a way to sort of play that game with myself of, okay, this is our first live action shoot that's over $100,000. Oh my gosh, how can we possibly charge that much? And I remember thinking, because this shoot is going to be so freaking great. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be something like we've never done before. And you just keep doing that over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, you produce great results. I like that. So your mindset uh, flip on them, the judo, is to say charge more because that will allow you to stretch your creative limitations. If anything else, do it for you. So if I charge more for something, I know I better bring it. And we know this about creative people is you give them a little bit of respect, give them a little bit of money, and they're going to go bananas. They're going to yes. go and kill themselves to try and make something great. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I have um, – so I have students in my uh, Creative Studio Jumpstart program that do struggle with this because they're the ones that are um, under 500000 a year or certainly most of them are under a million. And I can, def- I can think of an example of one of my students who said when he started – in the program, the biggest job that his small studio had ever done was $20,000. But this didn't come out until, I don't know, nine months later. And he was celebrating a success. He was sharing a project that he had done for this client. And we were all amazed and, you know, in our private group there watching this and saying, holy cow, dude, that project was so great. And somebody asked, what'd you charge for that? And he said $90,000. And everyone was like, wow, that's great. Congratulations. But I knew the right question to ask, wait a minute, how long ago was it that you would have never dreamed that you could sell a $90,000 project? And he said, oh, that's easy. Nine months ago, when the biggest thing we'd ever done was $20,000. But I can tell you, when you looked at the results of what he was able to produce, like it wasn't about the price. It was about, look how spectacular and moving and you know, incredible this piece was for the, for the client that he did it for. So what was his breakthrough? How do you go from limiting himself from a $20,000 job and going 4X? Well, I, I, I like, to take, um, <clears throat> I like to, take, to take people through a lot of different exercises, especially in marketing and sales, because so much of it is a, a head game. Um, one of the exercises I do is I ask creative entrepreneurs to imagine 10 times. So instead of, hey, Chris, uh, you're running this company, how would you like to improve it? You might say, well, I don't want to work quite as hard. I want to take a few more hours off here and there. Or we'd like to make 5% more money. I would like to come back and say, no, tell me something that's 10 times. Like, what if you made 10 times more revenue? Or what if you took off 10 times as much free time? Or what if you had 10 times as many awards? It's a way of a pattern interrupt. So that people don't think incrementally. They don't think, oh, yeah, I'm going to tweak this. I'm going to do that. Like, it just shatters the whole approach. And so I think with this uh, guy that in, in particular, when he went through that exercise, he realized, well, maybe instead of doing a $20,000 job, I want to do a $200,000 job. And I helped them visualize how over the next two or three years, it's absolutely possible. It's actually very normal for entrepreneurs to go through these stages. And I think, uh, you know, he's nine months in and he's went from 20 to 90. So he's, he's well on his way. That's excellent. I love that story. I guess I was looking for those kinds of 
real stories that people can be like, wow, I want that. Right. That's sure. amazing. Yeah, okay. sure. Here's another question for you. In, in the kind of solopreneur space, I'm a freelance artist or an independent contractor. There's this guilt that people carry around about doing the work themselves. And I always suggest, like, get the work, hire somebody that's capable or even better than you, and pay them a fair amount and make sure you charge enough so that you make money in between. But there's this thing that says, well, my hands didn't touch it. I didn't do it. And then they get hung up over that. Any advice you can give to that person? Uh, I would come back to the idea of genius that um, if you are a brilliant motion designer, okay, but maybe you're not God's gift in terms of being an editor, I would argue you have no business editing. Like you're doing a disservice to the client, to the world, if you want to get, you know, big about it, uh, philosophical, that like who are you to say you have to do it all? There's sort of um, maybe arrogance is a strong word, but uh, I've always thought, you know, if I'm great at this thing, I want to focus more and more on that, charge more for it, produce greater results, and then delegate these other things that I'm just okay at good at maybe even the things that I'm excellent at those are the hard things to delegate but I think there is there's a there's a chemistry and a synergy that happens when you delegate and you build a team that you produce results where the sum is you know the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and that's just how that's just a basic economic principle so I would say if you want to produce really really big results you have to learn how to delegate. That's just part of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Hmm. I, I like that spin. That, that was really good. I think what I'm hearing from you is it's okay for you to hold on to the things that you're the genius at, but let's be honest with ourselves yes. and make a company of collaborators. Yes. That those things that you might not excel at, bring other people in. Here's an example. I don't excel at a lot of things, but the thing that I excel at, I do, which is mostly talk to clients and help them feel comfortable and confident to work with us and then it's everybody else's job here to go and deliver on those promises from all my creative directors to even Aaron who's sitting in the room recording this for us I don't know how any of this stuff works all I know is like you do your job I trust you and then that's how we have this podcast yep no that's a great example yeah and it's it's uh that that notion of you know when entrepreneurs start and they're in this uh painful season um, and I've got, I don't know, probably 35 or so students right now that are sort of going through these transitions. And once they realize, you know, in order to go through it 10 times, like you realize, man, if I'm going to be doing not $100,000 of work a year, but a million, it just completely, you, you realize that your current way that you do work is going to completely break. It's going to just collapse. And so then you start to go, okay, well, what is it that I'm really really great at and I'm going to let go of everything else and let me just ask is that such a bad future like what were you planning on doing with the rest of your life anyways except focusing on what you love the most what creates the biggest results and makes a you know an impact on the world here's my take on this too speaking very personally now I always had this dream this vision that our company wasn't about me it was about hopefully my ability to attract some of the most creative people my friends students or peers and be able to bring them in and to not just only work with them but watch them watch and learn from them and to be in all of their genius 
and that was always like my thing I always feel like a sense of accomplishment because I've created a safe space here at the office for some of the most talented creative people that I can find to come here feel safe and do their thing and just just walk by their screen or hear them talk about something and just be like wow that is amazing and I'm just blown away by what you did I don't even know how you do what you do I love that because I think you're you you've entered that season of your career and in the industry where you're building a really cool stage on which others perform and that's there's actually a genius and a creative to that process so it's not about you you being in the limelight and you know grabbing the microphone you're saying no i'm gonna be the guy that puts in the lights i'm gonna put in the sound system i'm gonna build the stage so that the all these amazing talented people can come out here and do this thing at a level that i'm not even capable of what's what's the vision for rev pink where are you guys three years from now and you you've challenged us to think about our goals in a 10x so an exponential jump right what's your quantum leap goal like close your eyes tell me Three years from now, this is exactly what we're doing. This is the revenue we're making. These are the lives we're impacting. Right. Whatever metric you want to use, let's do that. I think that would be an amazing way to finish the show. Well, okay. So I'll first tell you, I'll tell you what it's not. And that is, it's not hundreds of clients, uh, millions and millions of dollars, uh, because those, I think, are the strategic byproducts of what I'm actually excited about. And that is, I am really passionate about making the industry stronger. Because I look out there and I see what everyone is up against. And of course, I've lived that life, you've lived that life. And when I see people struggling and the business is winning, not creative. And I say, no, creative has to win. Business is of course critical. The creative has to win. Uh, when I see workaholism, when I see people um, going, you know, experiencing burnout, um, when I see people stagnating uh, and not looking at the larger career, I get excited about. I want to make the whole industry stronger by educating everyone on how to do it better. What's your vision? <laughs> What's your purpose? What drives you? Uh, influence. Influence. I want to have an influence on the whole industry. Like I want to help make the whole tide rise, you know, and I, and I know if I can do that, sure, I'll be successful. Um, I think the biggest thing that motivates me though, is honestly the thank yous, you know, when you really get in there and you really help someone, the, the most awesome moment is when they just turn to you and they go, dude, thank you. And that, that, you know, that, that beats any other reward you can get. That's awesome. I talked to this woman. Uh, we were doing a shoot and interviewed a woman named Beate Chalette. And she was all about empowering women, the women's code. And she already exited out of her first company and said she made more money than she has a right to have. She sold her company to, uh, what is it, Corbis, I think. Okay. Uh, so she's like, now I'm on this other thing. And my only goal in life is to get a thank you note every single day. That's all. And she says the money will come, but it's a residual of what I do, but I don't really care. It's about the thank you. And I think that connects 
you, me, and everybody else that's in this space that's really about educating and empowering people to not only chase after their dreams, but the tools and techniques to get that dream, to make it real. Yeah. Well, I think we're fortunate in that we started in this industry, uh, you know, it's been it's been around a little while now, and it's matured. And guess what? As an industry matures, what comes out of it are a group of elders. There's a community of people who were there. And I know you're smiling because you're like, I don't have that much gray hair, Joel. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't have any hair at all, so let's not even go there. I was like, I'm glad to let you wear that label as an elder. I'll just yeah, see yeah. it here as the neophyte or whatever. Okay, it's okay, totally okay. fine by me. It's all good. Well, but the idea that there is this, uh, you know, hopefully this council or group of people who have been there and they've learned so much and they're really ang- excited about giving it away. It's what Jose would call the gray beards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the gray beards, yeah. Yeah. How do we get in contact with you? How do we get in touch with you? How do we find out more information about RevThink? So a couple of places. Uh, you can go to RevThink.com. Our blog is at RevThink.com slash RevThinking. And that's where articles, podcasts, all that kind of good stuff is. Um, we're also on Facebook. Uh, and check out Creative Studio Jumpstart. Um, that's it, RevThink.com slash Jumpstart. How about Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Oh, no, Facebook, you already mentioned it. What's the, what's the Twitter handle? Twitter handle, I, I'm I'm pretty much the Twitter guy in our group, so you can just find me at Joel Pilger. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Joel. It was awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad we were able to do this, and there's probably other stuff that you and I can talk about, but let's. I want to let this guy go home. Yeah, no, it's, awesome. It's been a long, uh, long thing. Uh, we just got back from Vegas ourselves, so everybody's just still running on. I don't know. They got a little crazy. That's all I can say. Things got (laughs) crazy. No, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It was really good to be here. This is Joel Pilger, and you're listening to The Future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future.